Austin, do you remember how long it took me to find a podcast platform for us? Forever. I ended up finding one called Anchor, and I initially chose it just because it was free. But it also has a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. They also distributed for us, so that's why we ended up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of our other places. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Everything you need to make a podcast in just one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. I'm Austin. We are here to talk about the things we didn't learn in school, but maybe we should have. We want to reiterate too that we love teachers. It's nothing to do with the teachers. It's 100% to do with the restrictions placed on teachers from the amount of time they have to cover each subject to the length of the school year to what is deemed appropriate for them to teach. Because Texas writes all the textbooks and Texas is Texas. Oh, yeah. It's it's a tough world out there, teachers. We love you. I used to be one of you. He and, used to be a children's librarian. And I'm also married to a teacher, so I get to hear all about it. <laughs> so I learned something weird today. What'd you learn? I learned that Chrissy Teigen is 33. She's, thir- she's RH. She's RH. What are we doing with our lives? This podcast... Marie Curie had a Nobel Prize when, well, she was winning the research that led to a Nobel Prize when she was our age. Lin-Manuel Miranda had already won his Tonys for In the Heights, and I believe this was around the time, the age where Hamilton came out. What are we doing with our lives? We are wasting our lives. We just have, like, a pile of cats Mm -hmm. and a podcast that five people listen to. And a whole lot of student loan debt. Yay! So every week we each pick our own topic. We don't share them ahead of time other than just a heads up about what we're doing to make sure that we don't accidentally do the same topic. And let's be honest, we get excited and shout out random facts. But for the most part, we don't share with each other because we want to make sure that we have natural reactions to the things that we probably should have learned in school and never did. I started last time, so Austin's going to start this time. This one started out because... I wanted to look into radium because we've been doing lots of people and places history, but I wanted to do some science history. And it led me down a rabbit hole to learning how awesome Marie Curie was. I remember a little bit about Marie Curie because she was a scientist. We never talked about her in history class. We talked about her only briefly in science class. And it was one of those, look, a woman. Now let's talk about what the real people did, meaning the men. Marie Skidoska Curie was born on November 7th, 1867 in Warsaw, Poland. And this was really neat. Her college was a underground secret fight club college. What? It was Warsaw Flying University. This was back when Warsaw was ruled by Russia and they didn't want women getting educations and stuff. The Warsaw Flying University? It was an underground secret university to give women college educations. It was both underground and flying. Yes. Is this Hogwarts, but in Warsaw? It's Hogwarts, but in Warsaw. It's Hogwartsky. Okay. So it was neat. It was a cons- conspiratorial education courses for women. <laughs> That's all education courses for women. We are all just conspiring against you. The patriarchy is doing our best, damn it, but you women are too wily. What with your wiles? Our feminine wiles? I wasn't going to say that, but yes. Well, I mean, the patriarchy is under attack, and you men are finally finding your place. (gasps) Oh no, they've admitted it. It's on a recording. It's true. It's happened. Eh, you deserve it. It's our turn. We do. We absolutely deserve it. So anyway, she got her, like, secret underground education. Then she went with her sister to the University of Paris, and this is where she met her husband, Pierre Curie. Pierre Curie. He was a scientist too, right? He was a scientist too. They were like the perfect scientist team. I imagine them like us, but smart. (laughs) And capable of doing anything with science. Yes. Well, we are struggling with making a microphone work good. They were doing stuff. See, I actually got enrolled in advanced science classes all through high school, but it turns out you need to be good at math in order to do science. And while I'm good at math, I'm slow at math and... They don't have the time to let me be slow at math. So anyway, when she was at the university 
and doing research with her husband in physics and chemistry and math. They figured out about x-rays about that time. And they also figured out that uranium, or a specific uranium ore called pitch blend, which is what they did everything with back then, gave out something that were like x-rays, but not x-rays. So they were trying to figure out the very basics of subatomic particles and radiation at this time. Well, she was theorizing at the time that it wasn't a chemical reaction that was causing this, but it was something happening within the atom. And that was what the basis of the research was on. A chemical reaction causing what? It wasn't a chemical reaction. No, but it wasn't a chemical reaction causing what? Radiation. Oh, okay. So I'm not going to get into the science of radiation because it's like, you need drawings for that. And I can't draw on a podcast. You sure not a lot on a podcast, though. I do not a lot. It's really, really hard because I have these pauses where I expect him to respond. And all he does is nod. Yep. Hey, you gesture wildly. Yes, but I do it while talking. I mean, that's just your life. It is. It's amazing I haven't broken your nose yet, honestly. You, you have hit me in the head a few times. Oh, so that's what happened. That's why it's so lumpy. <laughs> they uh, did their work in a drafty old medical dissection shed in the back of the University of Paris. See, when I do that, they call me a serial killer. Mm-hmm. By the way, they were completely unaware of the dangers of radiation at this time. So they were just walking around with samples of uranium in their pockets. Kind of like Instagram ins- influencers these days out at Chernobyl. Yes, Except Marie Curie was so much smarter than any Instagram influencer. Well, she didn't know to not do it, and they do. I mean, I guess Chrissy Teigen, she would be, like, all about the... I guess science was the Instagram of the time, and she's 33, so she would have been the Marie Curie of... Chrissy Teigen would know to wear her radiation protection. She would. So it was drafty. It was actually... When it rained, it would leak water into it. It was, like, really, really bad lab conditions where they did most of their early research. The school also didn't sponsor them. It was actually mining and mineral companies that provided samples to them so they could actually do their research. Kind of like the arts and schools having to find funding from other places. Yes. It was mostly, it's like, oh, it's a woman doing stuff? Well, this is cute. All you do in there is just play games with the kids, or in this case, the radioactive elements. So while they were doing this, she theorized that there was a different radioactive element in Pitch Blend, not just the uranium. So she wanted to go in and examine it and find the different parts of the, the different parts of this ore. Our cat is trying to jump up, right? Nope, oh, there you go. Ah, there, yay, hi Draco. He's helping. So in July of 1898, they found polonium in pitch blend, which is one of the elements they discovered, named after Poland. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, polonium is named after Poland. But this is after Polonius. I kind of figured it was Polonius from Shakespeare for some reason. I wonder if Poland is named after Polonius. I think Poland might have existed at the time of... I don't know, though. Dude, I don't know either. Now I remember who they were fighting in Hamlet. Um, I think it was Sweden? No, it wasn't Sweden. Started with an L, I think. Well, let's go on. Liechtenstein. No, Lithuania. Go, go on! Luxembourg. We will talk about Shakespeare another time. L countries! Lithosho. Wait, that's in Africa. No. Okay, so the Korees published 32 papers between 1898 and 1902 about the radioactive elements they were finding in pitch blend and all of this stuff. Also, some of their early discoveries led to radiation cancer treatments because they noticed that radiation affected cancerous cells more so than it did healthy, normal cells. So it was kind of like the basis of what we use now for like radiation treatments. It's so weird that radiation can go both cause and help cancer go away. It's Radiation's weird. Science is neat. So this is when they win their first Nobel Prize. It was uh, with her husband, Pierre, and Henri Becquerel. He was the guy who discovered the radiation from uranium. This is fun. The committee at first only wanted to give it to Pierre and Henri. Uh-huh. But a committee member in Sweden, was a, like, early proponent of women in science. So, they, uh, the first committee only wanted to give them the award, but he, like, secretly wrote to Pierre. So Pierre wrote back and complained, you need to put Marie on this because she did a lot of the work, too. Mm-hmm. So she then became the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. And she's about 33, right? Yeah. this was, No, she would have been about 36, What are we doing with our lives? Where's our Nobel Prize? Oh, here, let me do some math better. Yeah, she would have been about 36. Uh. By the way, in 1905, when they're trying to figure out the cause of radiation, which they still had to figure it out, they realized it was some internal thing in these elements because they had had gotten pure polonium and figured out, oh, yeah, that's radiation, so it's not a chemical reaction that's causing this. 
they decided they were going to get in the spiritualist movement. Is that the one with, like, the fake psychics and stuff? The fake psychics and stuff. Oh, that's so awesome! So they went to a, uh, psych- they went to psychics and did a lot of research, like, like, took copious notes. Pierre was interested and thought this was a good, this was a good way to go forward. Marie thought this was a bunch of, it was not worthy of merit. I disagree, Marie. You never know. So that was going on. Then in 1906, Pierre got run over by a carriage (laughs) and died. You monster! This was like... Okay, no, I put it to song. You monster. This was like science's OTP. They were... Pierre got run over by a carriage. (laughs) Coming home from the psychic's Christmas Eve. (laughs) So yeah, it's like super sad because they were like the original science couple. But because he died and they're having trouble filling his professorship spot, they offered her the job and she became the first female professor at the University of Paris. Oh, cool. In 1910, though, she had finally isolated radium, which is what she's most famous for. Did she bully it until it stopped having friends? It's, so apparently uh, radium was pretty rare. Like she originally, when she was searching for it, because she thought there was a other radioactive elements in pitch blend, she started grinding up samples in her lab by hand. Well, it turns out that for every ton of pitch blend ore, there is 0.1 gram of radium. And it's also really difficult to, like, isolate out. (laughs) Sorry. I've got a cat's butt in my face right now. Draco just stood up and was repeatedly hitting Austin in the face with his tail. Draco would like to know why he does not get to be on the podcast. It's because you are quiet. And it's like, Draco... We've seen your research. You just don't do any. You just want kibbles. Well, his research is into the merits of kibbles versus wet food and how they affect his power to attack his brother. Our cats are all jerks, especially Mm -hmm. this one right now. And he knows it, so he's trying to be extra cute. Okay. I've lost where I was. Draco, where was I? You're you're worthless to me. One gram of radium for every... Ton. Mm -hmm. It was just insane and she had to like do all of these weird crystallization processes to isolate radium out of this ore it was a big deal and it was big cutting-edge science and during this time the french uh right-wing press hated her because she was a foreigner she wasn't even french they accused her of being a jew and an atheist her daughter pointed out who by the way her daughter also won a nobel prize Mm mm-hmm because, you know, this is an awesome family. Her pointed out that the hypocrisy of the press attacking her as a villain when nominated for French honors, but calling her a French hero when she was nominated for foreign honors. Because she was trying to get into the uh, French Academy of Sciences when they all when she got like super attacked, and they ended up admitting a guy who only kind of helped with making the radio. So the guy who had a sixth grade science project? I mean, let's not... Downplay. He, made, no, he made the actual. I know. I know. He like it. He helped the guy who made the radio. It but probably didn't have a potato. Oh, that's a clock. That that's a, a clock. I mean, you could probably make a. You could probably make a radio with a potato. All right. Let's, let's try that. We'll, we'll do science. that afterwards. So, and of course, then shortly after this time, she had an affair with one of her husband's former students, who was estranged from his wife. Her husband's not the one who died. Her husband's the one who died. Pierre. Oh, okay, I thought it was the other guy who died. No, Pierre died. Her husband died. Yeah, I thought it was the other guy. Yeah. Pierre died. So she had an affair with one of her husband's former students. And the news broke from these same news like newspapers that hated her during this time. They accused her of being a home-wrecking Jew. <laughs> now, she was in Belgium when this happened. And when she came home, there was an actual mob outside of her house. So she had to flee to the countryside with her daughters. And this was also the time of the Dreyfus Affair, which did you know? Okay, France was crazy anti-Semitic, like, at the turn of the century. Like, holy shit. That's kind of the world all throughout time. Yeah, but, like, it was, like, wow. See, I don't know what the Dreyfus Affair is, so I'm just picturing Mr. Holland's opus right now. You know what? Close enough. Actually, it's it's nothing like the... No, they're not related at all. So... <laughs> It was during this time, during this fair, they thought, like, well, maybe we shouldn't give her the Nobel Prize because of all of this stuff happening. But they ended up giving it to her anyway. So she became the first woman to win a solo Nobel Prize and the first the first woman to win two Nobel Prizes. 
and the first person, the first woman to win two Nobel prizes in two separate fields. Oh wow! Yeah, that can't happen very often in general. No, no, it? she's like I think she's still the only woman to have won two Nobel prizes in separate fields. And Don't I quote haven't me on even that. won one. Dude, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Like, where's your Nobel prize? You haven't even gotten a Pulitzer. But I spend so much time in the lab. You do now. It's like petting the next door neighbor's Labrador is not lab time. That was a bad joke. Let's rewind and pretend that one never happened. Oh no, I'm leaving that in. I'm leaving that in so you can share your shame with everyone. Wow. You're the worst. Yeah, but I'm the best wife you've ever had. It's true. You're the best wife anyone's ever had. I like to think so. Well, except for maybe Pierre Curie. Yeah, I can't compete with her. No, no one can. So around this time, even though big chunks of France hated her because she was born in Poland, but she has literally spent her entire adult life in Paris and France, World War I breaks out. And she offers to melt down her Nobel Prizes into gold and donate that money to the war effort. Oh, wow. The banks refuse. So she just uses all of the money from her second Nobel Prize, and she just invests in war bonds with that. And uh, she didn't stop there. She also invested her own like time effort and like energy into researching all of the an- anatomy stuff the automotive stuff and all the stuff to make mobile radiology labs to like treat soldiers during world war one they called them petite curies they estimate that these treated about one million french soldiers during the course of world war one so these were mobile x-rays yeah mobile x-rays so they were doing like early radiology in the field was Marie Curie. Very cool. You can't even do that on ambulances. Oh, no. I mean, well, mobile was like big hauled-in truck things that could be set up. Oh, okay. Yeah. After World War One, or actually this might have been, this was before World War One. My notes got out of order because I'm bad at this. President Harding gave her a gram of radium collected in the United States when she was on tour, which she hated because she was like so fucking sick of publicity work. But she used that to kind of found the Polish Radium Institute because after World War I, Poland became its own country. Poland thought she was a big fucking deal, which she was. And the Polish government's like, yes, we will do whatever the hell you want, Marie Curie. They were very big supporters of her, even though she still continued to live in France. See, I always, and that was another thing when I was in school, is I always learned that she was French. They never once mentioned the fact that the French didn't care for her, by and large. Uh, they didn't care for her because she was born in Poland, even though she was, she identified as French because she lived their entire life. Her children were French. Her husband was French. Now, was she actually Jewish or were they just using nope. that as a, oh, goodness. Yeah, she wasn't actually Jewish. I mean, that doesn't make it any better or mm-hmm. worse. It just yeah, it's makes like, it incorrect on top of being nasty. She was just not French. She hated the publicity work. She also founded a French radium institute as well. Mm-hmm. After World War One, when like you know she she earned the love of everyone by being amazing during World War One, but she hated the publicity work and she wanted to kind of retire quietly and just kind of do her own thing. Even though she was on the international board of radiation and like the elements, and she determined all of this stuff that set the standards for radiation, numbering elements. She was involved in that. She was also the first woman to be involved in that, and she died on July fourth. 1934. July 4th, 1934. That's actually right before my stuff starts. Now, I want to go into a second about the dangers of radium. Please do. She had chronic radiation poisoning symptoms, including cataracts, fatigue, all of this stuff. She would carry around radioactive specimens in her pockets. (laughs) She had a ton of x-ray exposure from her radiology work during World War I. She actually commented in her journals about the faintly glowing samples she kept in her desk drawers. I'm a little jealous of that. And to this day, all of her papers are in lead boxes because they are dangerously radioactive. Still. I hope she's a ghost now and her ghost glows wherever it goes. Oh, it gets better. Her cookbook is also dangerously radioactive. You actually need to, like, wear protective gear and get special permission to look at any of her original documents. Her cookbook as in, like, chemicals? or No, her, like... (laughs) Macaroni and cheese. Yeah, her macaroni and cheese recipe is dangerously radioactive. You might say it's killer. Oh, what a radiation burn. 
we could go on like this, but to spare you all, we won't. When she was doing her initial research, she didn't know the dangers of radiation. They were starting to figure it out, though, like later in her life. This is what was causing all these problems and these health dangers. But she never really acknowledged that anything she did was dangerous and was kind of very cavalier about the, oh, whatever, it's just a little radium. She didn't directly die of, like, radiation poisoning. So, yeah, that was Marie Curie. Are you ready for some questions? So what these questions are is not the answers, but whether or not we think they would be on a test in school. Okay. Would the fact that Marie Curie was born in Poland be on the test? Yeah, I think so. Would the fact that she briefly thought that radiation might have been caused by ghosts be on the test? You didn't talk about that! That's when, like, the spiritualist movement, they were, like, talking to mediums because she thought that... You didn't say that! I, I directly said that! You must have not been listening. No, I asked you if it was the spiritualist movement with all of the psychics and stuff, and you jumped over that. Oh no, you 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 interrupted my train of thought. Yeah, it was the spiritualism with all the psychics and stuff. They thought ghosts were causing radiation because spiritualism was a big deal, so she... Okay, so she thought radiation was caused by ghosts. Very briefly. They uh, determined that, that was a no. Pierre still thought it was, but she Pierre thought, thought that th- Pierre thought there might be some, there might be something to this. She didn't. But then Pierre died, so I guess, you know, Marie proved him wrong. Unless he was radioactive and haunting her and really into her cookbook. Ooh. But no, that would not be on the test because that doesn't make her seem especially scientific. Yeah, because it's like science back then, I mean, like, she was cutting edge and she was still working in a leaky shed. I do feel like most of my scientific research will be based on ghosts, though. Oh, of course. Well, the fact that France kind of didn't like her for the first half of her life be on the test? Probably not, no. When we heroify people, we try to make it look like everyone loved them. Well, the fact that she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize be on the test. Oh, yeah. I don't know, though, if they'll put in the fact that her husband had to write them an angry note to make sure of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's Marie Curie. And she had done more by 33 than we will do in our entire lives. Yeah. See, we're kind of going through a joint existential midlife crisis, and it's all Chrissy Teigen's fault. I know. It's like we were fine until, like, recently when she made big news for some reason. Yeah, you'll probably be hearing this way after everything. But that foul-mouthed woman is our age and has drawn ire from all corners of the globe, and we have mad respect for that. Props, Chrissy Teigen. I hope you hear this podcast. So my story actually starts right after yours and also involves a badass woman, but I'm not going to be focusing on her too much because I might save her for another episode. What do you know off the top of your head about the New Deal and the Works Progress Administration? They built a lot of dams and stuff. They built things and put people to work during the Depression, and it was the worst kind of socialism. (laughs) The New Deal was a response to the Great Depression. It was put in place by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, and it focused on what historians refer to as the three R's, which are relief for the unemployed and poor, recovery of the economy back to normal levels, and reform of the financial system to prevent a repeat depression. I quoted that directly from Wikipedia, by the way, in school. We learned about the WPA a little bit. We learned about the New Deal. And then there was the second New Deal, which was 1935, 1936. Wait, second New Deal? Yeah. It just kind of expanded things a little bit. Dude, we only learned that there was the New Deal and everything got fixed. And then World War II happened. We got told that it involved men going back to labor jobs. Yeah. It was all labor. It was blue collar. It was farming. It was building dams. And it almost solely employed men. Mm-hmm. What we didn't learn about was the Federal Theater Project. What? The Federal Theater Project. It was a branch of the WPA during this time. During the WPA, the government was the largest employer in the United States, and they didn't just employ men. They didn't just employ laborers. They actually ended up employing artists. Remember, as long as humanity has existed, there have been artists. Theater history is human history. Our earliest forms of communication between different tribes was done via performance because there was no common language. 
So we've always had theater people, even during times of economic strife. And just as much as laborers, they were out of work. The laborers had to be able to prove they could do the job. Chances are someone with a background like mine probably can't build a dam. I would love to see you try to build, build a dam, but I would not like to live downstream of that dam. If it was that hard for people with labor-related skills to get work, it was even harder for theater people because theater was and is considered a luxury. They also looked at it as a filling the need for people to be entertained because the Great Depression wasn't just financial. It was an overall feeling throughout the country. People had nothing in their lives, nothing to entertain them. Even beer was outlawed. Prior to the Federal Theater Project, I might call it FTP throughout, any money that was given to theater programs was considered charity. But when they started it, it was specifically about employment. So like other fields, they had to make sure all the workers were certified as employable and could prove that they were skilled and trained theater workers. They couldn't just walk in and be like, I am an actor. That's how I was planning on getting my first acting job. I'm just going to walk into like anywhere. It's like, I am an actor. You need to hire me. So the WPA got $4.88 billion in, in that time. Whoa. And the Federal Theater Project got $27 million of that. And today's money, if my math slash the website I used was right, the WPA was worth approximately $91.4 billion today. And the Federal Theater Project got about $505.7 million, which was 1%. Yeah, that's like, that's like half a billion now, which is not a lot for like a big federal program. The key here is to remember that this is only 1% of that budget. That becomes important later. Okay, 1% of the budget. The person in charge of the Federal Theater Project was a woman named Hallie Flanagan. She was referred by a former Grinnell College classmate of hers, Harry Hopkins. Now, it's important to remember, women had only been allowed to vote for about 15 years, and now she's running a major nationwide government program. Her vision, which basically is my dream job, was to bring high quality and modern theater to the majority of the public. So not just people in New York and Chicago, the entire country. And many of the people, most of the people in the United States had never seen a play. That's weird because I remember in the Old West, everyone saw plays like all the time. Shakespeare was a big deal back then and then it kind of died out for a while. Well, that goes back to cost. Mm. Even today, I taught kids who were 11, 12, 14 years old, many of them had never seen a play outside of their school's little quat Christmas productions that they mm -hmm. would do. That's the only theater they had ever yeah, seen. I, I don't think I saw anything like a professional production of anything until I was an adult. But you saw community theater. Oh yeah. A lot of these kids haven't even seen that. Even, and back then it was even less likely that they would have seen things because of the cost. I mean, is not seeing a community theater production of Hello Dolly a bad thing? It is because it takes you away from having exposure to a different art form. And you know how it is. I've seen you do this. When you see something that you could buy, you think I could make that. Uh-huh. If you're watching a play, you can think I can do that or I can do that better if it happens to be a bad play. And the nice thing with theater is, especially community theater, you see the people out there at least really loving what they're doing. But okay, can we badmouth the production of Cats we saw here on our podcast? Oh, we'll probably get sued. Especially okay. with that movie coming out. Yeah, I'm not going to badmouth cats right now. I don't want Taylor Swift's people after me again. We do love Taylor Swift. And we have had her people after us indirectly before. She made eye contact with you once. She did! I'm sure she remembers you. She'd better. So, when we think of theater, we think of places like New York City and Chicago. Yeah. But the point was to employ people all around the country. So Flanagan went in and created the program from the ground up to ensure it would work everywhere, not just in major cities. At this point, as I mentioned, people hadn't seen plays in part because TV and radio had started to take over and theater was very reluctant to change with the times. They were reluctant to bring in newer technologies. They had also become really expensive for the average person, kind of like it is now. Think about how much it costs to get a ticket to Hamilton. Oh, dude, I'm, my kidney still hurts from when I had to sell it for that. Back in this era, you could spend a whole day at the movies for just a quarter, and attending one play cost $1.10 to $2.20. What, you could spend the entire day at the movies? Oh, yeah. That's actually an episode I'm thinking about doing later, is the history of movie theaters and how we ended up with standard and required start and end times, and how we created sneaking into movies, because it didn't used to be a thing. You could spend a whole day there for 25 cents. I have cents. only ever snuck into one movie, 
And it was one of the Twilight ones because I had gone on my own to see a good movie. But then I get a text immediately afterwards like, hey, we're at this theater. You want to come watch Twilight with us? I think it might have been you. I don't remember that. It might have it might have been someone else. But it was just a, hey, you want to come watch this Twilight movie? It's like, I'm already in the theater. I'll just walk in and I didn't have to pay for it. And it still wasn't worth it. <laughs> See, I've actually never snuck into a movie. You're such a goody two-shoes. I, I am really not shocked am. by this. I mean, I also used to work at a movie theater, and that job is not easy, and they're not paid well enough, so be nice to your movie theater employees. Don't make their jobs harder. Anyway, 110 to 220 was how much it cost to go to a play, which would be $20.60 to $41.20 now, which for a lot of people, including ourselves, you can't spend that much money willy-nilly. And that's the case for a lot of lower income people and why they've never seen plays or why people with large families have never seen plays today too because 20 bucks per ticket when you've got four kids is just outside of the realm of possibility. Within a year, the Federal Theater Project employed about 15,000 people, men and women. So most other places only employed men, they also employed women. The project only existed for about four years, but in that time it played for about 30 million people all across the country. Wow. And since there weren't theaters in all of the places where they performed, they often performed in found spaces. And found spaces are where theatrical productions happen that are not stages. Places like parks, empty warehouses, things like that. They did a lot of churches. The program had five regional centers, dividing up the country into five parts. New York City, Boston, Chicago, LA, and New Orleans. Now, interestingly, and I didn't see- Wait, aren't like New York City and Boston like super close to each other they are and that just comes down to i think the number of people who are in the northeast and the number of artists who are in the northeast these places are all still arts hubs today too a lot of shows before they go to broadway perform in boston or chicago los angeles actually has a pretty decent theater scene and it's still known for film more and the new orleans we've been there it's just arts everywhere And I wonder, I couldn't find anything about this, but then again, I didn't look for too many scholarly articles. I wonder if the continued success of these areas as arts hubs isn't directly related to the one time in history the government has really assisted the arts and officially named these as arts hubs. I wouldn't be surprised because, I mean, that also led to things like theaters and just this culture of having actors and being able to go see shows in these areas. I bet that has something to do with it. Despite the attempt to reach everywhere in the country, it didn't operate in every state. Simply because there weren't enough people in that field in those states. If they tried in one state and they had to shut it down, they would often move the employees to another state. And that was a lot of it in the South and in the Midwest. In fact, the only Northeastern state I see on here that got theirs closed down was Rhode Island. Well, I mean, Rhode Island's like six people in a barn. Rhode Island's beautiful, though. The Federal Theater Project in the 1930s, recognized that theater is not exclusively for white English-speaking people in the 1930s. So they started the Negro Theater Unit as part of the program. They established chapters of that in several major cities representing all the same areas of the country, with 22 cities ultimately serving as the Negro Theater Unit's headquarters at different times. This employed over a thousand black actors and directors. And unlike some other endeavors that were going on, this was also not completely segregated. So remember, we didn't have desegregation until the late 50s, early 60s, and now. But in the 1930s, the Federal Theater Project, although they did have a predominantly black portion of it, they had desegregated areas. The point of the program was to ensure that underrepresented artists got their time on the stage. And the most popular production from the Negro Theater unit was Voodoo Macbeth, which was directed by Orson Welles. What? And it set Macbeth on a mythical island that was reminiscent of the Haitian court of King Henri Christophe. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So we've also always been doing really interesting things with Shakespeare with not setting it in the quote unquote correct settings. Also, I hope nobody's listening to this in a theater because Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. Ow, my bones! This is one of the many areas in which the Federal Theater Project differed from the other parts of the WPA. They focused on racial injustice. They didn't just say, oh, we can have people of different backgrounds. They actually made it a focus. 
And Hallie Flanagan ordered her subordinates to abide by the rules. She insisted that there was racial representation in all national planning, and she followed through. There was a white project manager for the project in Dallas, and they were on a train, and he decided he was going to segregate his black artists and his white artists from each other on the train. He got fired. The actors and crew did not. Of course, if this is going to happen, it's going to be arts people, because arts people don't put up with bullshit. It's like, they have to deal with actors. They're not going to put up with your bullshit. (laughs) Or sometimes we put up with too much. Sorry, I lost my spot. I'm going to make fun of you because you made fun of me. Then you're going to lose your spot and forget to tell me that there was radioactive ghosts. Because they were so focused on the diversity issues, they found out that there were a lot of young black playwrights who were without work, but they also couldn't prove that they could do the work because they were young and black and therefore had not done the work. So she actually waived the requirement for proof of previous work in it and just brought them into the program and, st- and opened a training program. She also argued that the Harlem branch of the Federal Theater Project be led by an African-American artist, but this caused a big old fight. There was an actor named Rose McClendon who said a white person should be in charge and then eventually handed over to a black person. And I couldn't find much justification for that. My guess would be that it would seem more legitimate Mm -hmm. to people of the time. Well, that's always the thing. It's like, oh, we'll have to just like... Trust me, like you'll get your time, but we're gonna get things started. We're gonna get people comfortable. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, and that never happens. And it never works when they try. No. The whole thing became so contentious that the project's funding in Harlem was pulled. In addition to the Negro Theater Unit, the project also produced plays in languages including German, Spanish, and Yiddish. So it wasn't just English. So they were not just welcoming of people of color; they were welcoming of people from different linguistic backgrounds, different uh, with immigrants. They were really forward thinking, all things considered. And along with promoting the arts as something for people of all races, they argue that it's also for all ages, which, you know, that's a very close to my heart. They created productions for children that were supposed to be educational and entertaining. In addition to now employing actors and crew members, they start employing educators and psychologists and they produce the works. And that makes it so that they can employ puppeteers, musicians, special effects artists. Hallie Flanagan was a bomb-ass genius, basically. Yeah. She sees all these different sorts of people who are out of work, and they are in areas not considered necessary for infrastructure, and she finds ways to bring them in. And more importantly, stealth modernizing these stodgy theaters while she's at it with Mm -hmm. new technology and shit. That's awesome! The nice thing about children's theater is it's so much opportunity for growth and technology because Mm -hmm. kids love magic and they're a lot more forgiving of mistakes because everything is so magical. Yeah. So this was fantastic. A lot of their shows were based on fairy tales, folk tales, and there were some original works created as well. I've read one. Mm -hmm. It's called Revolt of the Beavers. Go on. Frankly, it's boring as hell to the modern reader, but it's important in the grand scheme of things. Basically, a bunch of beavers on roller skates get mad at their boss, and one of them leads a revolt. Take a breath. Revolting beavers. On roller skates. skates. And these are people dressed as beavers with the tails on roller skates. This show still gets produced from time to time. If I I had a production, you want to see it? Oh, so much. (laughs) So they get one of the leaders to fight against the boss. They said that the boss was exploiting them. The government said, the actual government, that this is clearly communist propaganda. The Federal Theater Project said, um, it's a beavers on roller skates. <laughs> it was communist propaganda. It was very communist propaganda. But how are you going to prove it when it's beavers on roller skates? And they're old timey beavers, so they're just so hairy. This is when it starts getting oh, wait. dark. So wait, it gets darker from Beavers on Roller Skates? Well, one thing that Flanagan was promised was that the theater would be, quote, free, adult, uncensored. That turned out to not be the case. One of the project's big things was the living newspaper, which is exactly what it sounds like. They took newspaper headlines, newspaper clippings, and turned them into theatrical productions. The goal was to inform audiences, but several of the productions were accused of having left-wing themes. 
they presented shows about the Supreme Court's decision to kill an aid agency for farmers. Or they did one about Ethiopia's struggle against Mussolini, and they took the news and put it on stage. And that's when the government went, oh, we don't look so great in this. Oh. And no, I don't know anything about Ethiopia versus Mussolini. Okay, good, because I just, I just found a book about it that I've been reading, and it's cool. The U.S. government then decided to mandate what they could and could not perform. You met theater people? Yeah, they don't like being told what they can or cannot do. I mean, I told you, please don't do something. And you knew it was a bad idea. But I can see you just contemplating doing it. Theater people, even in times when theater was full out banned, found ways to perform and to perform what they wanted to do. The big no-no that they said was that theater could not depict foreign heads of state on stage because they were worried about an international incident. But they ended up broadening and broadening to, you can't put on any plays that are anything interesting at all. <laughs> the Federal Theater Project brought about a lot of theater artists whose works we still study. Orson Welles, Arthur mm -hmm. Miller, Elia Kazan, Susan Glassful, who was the director of the Mid Midwest region. Mark Blitzen, John Hauserman, and Orson Welles collaborated on a project called The Cradle Will Rock a movie about which was put out in 1999. It wasn't a movie of the play, but about the play, and it's really interesting. The Cradle of Rock was an entirely sung play, but it's not considered an opera, and it caused controversy because it seemed to criticize the world around them, specifically corporate greed and high-powered societal figures keeping people in the working class in their place. Well, this has nothing to do with anything that's happening now. Oh, I get into that later. The WPA temporarily shut down the show just before it was supposed to open. So to avoid breaking any government or union rules, and this is why theater people are the best. The show was performed June 16th, 1937 from the audience. <laughs> As in Blitzstein sat on stage and played piano. It was just a little piano performance. They didn't know that actors were suddenly going to stand up in the audience and start performing their parts. <laughs> It later got an official performance at the Mercury Theater, which was founded by Wells and Houseman, and it ended up being the first ever production, period, with an original cast recording. Wow. Mm -hmm. This leads into the real reason this was all shut down. Think about the PBS arguments today. Should the government be funding things like that when they're not necessary? How dare you try to do anything when there is a single homeless veteran on the street? And the thing is, it's totally different funds, and it's not like they diverted PBS funds into helping with that. No. So the Federal Theater Project had the same issue. The way it kind of breaks down is that the subset of the New Deal it was under, it took 29% of that funding, but only 1% of the overall budget of the WPA. Oop, train. Train! We live right by train tracks, so you can find us. There's only one train track in this country. It's true. They'll never know that we are in the wrong side of the tracks, too. 1% of the overall budget. I said that would come back. So the official argument against it, and the reason they're trying to pull funding initially, was that it's not generating revenue, even though that was never the purpose of this or any other New Deal endeavor. The only thing they expected to make money for the government was the arts. That had never been put in the rules placed on Hallie Flanagan. So she said, and I quote, in any consideration of the cost of the federal theater, it should be borne in mind that the funds were allotted according to the terms of the Relief Act of 1935 to pay wages to unemployed people. Therefore, when the federal theater was criticized for spending money, it was criticized for doing what it was set up to do. <laughs> oh. Ultimately, the program was ended because Congress believed that the program was presenting overtly left-wing politics, though there is evidence that only less than 10% of the productions did anything remotely like that. They fired everybody because of what a tiny percentage was doing. I'll be covering the House Committee on Un-American Activities another time, but they are part of this. Of course. Martin Dyes, he directed that committee, attacked Hallie Flanagan personally. And she argued back that the Federal Theater Project allowed people to use their freedom of speech to address the concerns of American citizens. Dyes disagreed, saying that the project's commitment to racial equality and warnings of war, among other things, proved that they were radicals and communists, and abruptly pulled funding on June 30th, 1939, leaving 8,000 people suddenly unemployed. So the whole point was to employ people 
And then they kicked 8,000 people out of their jobs. Of course, because they were actors and there was a war going on. Wait, no, this was 39? This was 39. There might have been a war going on. I don't remember what month you said. June 30th. Okay, there wasn't a war going on. Wait. Damn it. I don't remember when World War II started. I'm bad at this. I honestly am terrible at dates in general. That's why I can't remember our anniversary except for the fact that it's our cat's birthday. True story. Congress said that the end of the project was not really about that. So Dyes is like, yes, it is. Congress is like, no, that's not a thing. They said it was because Americans didn't want to spend their tax dollars on something as frivolous as the arts. Again, an argument we hear today. Uh Uh-huh. Flanagan's stepdaughter quoted an unnamed congressman who was asked about the necessity of theater and the arts as saying, culture, what the hell, let them have a pick and shovel. In other words, who needs the art? Make them get a real job. It's like what people say to kids today, that's not a real job, when in fact, there are thousands of jobs in the arts. Okay. Thousands. Yeah, next time you watch a movie and you see the credits go by... Every single name you see on that is a person who is employed in the arts. Every single state has people who are in the arts. Every single city has people who are in the arts. Here, where I'm I'm job searching right now, you would not believe how many jobs there are in technical theater just at the casinos around here. And they pay well and have really good Glassdoor ratings. Sponsor us, Glassdoor. We mentioned you. And sponsor us, casinos. We'll take chips. We continue to hear echoes of this today, like we said. In 2011, Kansas became the first state without an arts agency. Then Governor Sam Brownback stated... Sorry, that was involuntary. (laughs) He stated, the arts will continue to thrive in Kansas when funded by private donations. And that proved quickly to not be the case. And a lot of Kansas' artists went to Missouri. Uh And that has since resulted in arts education going down because they're saying that there aren't enough artists in Kansas to justify teaching it at K through 12. Because how are they going to get a job if there are no artists here? Because we didn't fund the arts. It's like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Kansas City is actually considered a major arts hub, too, but it's all on the Missouri side. For those of you who aren't from Kansas City, everything in Kansas City is on the Missouri side. Nothing is on the Kansas side. The Kansas Arts Commission reopened in 2013, but with significantly less funding. And then in 2018, just last year, Alaska also became a state without an arts council. And that cut only 0.014 of the state's budget. That's how they saved money. 0.014% by cutting the state's arts budget. But weirdly, the articles about this said that Alaska was the first state to do this. Did they forget Kansas existed? I'm not sure how they could do... Like, a three-second Google search lets you know. In fact, if you type states without an arts council or states without arts funding, the first thing that comes up is Kansas becomes first state without arts funding. But let's end with a fun fact. Fun facts! Fun facts! One of the shows criticized by Congress was called Sing for Your Supper. And it included the song Ballad for Americans. The Federal Theater Project was shut down in 1939 for being un-American. Ballad for Americans was chosen as the theme song for the Republican National Convention the very next year. However, it's important to remember that back then, the Republicans, like FDR's successor Herbert Hoover, were the left. Mm -hmm. And Democrats, like Martin Dyes of the House Committee of Un-American Activities, were the right. Yeah. That has now switched. It's played jump rope a lot throughout history. It's not correct to say, well, you're the party of this or you're the party of that when referencing things 50, Mm -hmm. 100, 200 years ago because they've changed so much. We have to just look at the parties of the time they were in. The very next year after they were shut down for being un-American, the Republicans picked it up as their their official theme song. (laughs) Okay, that had to have been intentional. I mean, just purely just like a big fuck you move. 100%. It's really there to just show you what side you're on. So, are you ready to decide if some things will be on a test? Yes. Let's talk about just a test of the New Deal in general. Not talking about a test over the Federal Theater Project. You're not taking a theater class for this. All right. On a test about the New Deal, will the Federal Theater Project show up? Probably not. And I think that goes back to the whole get a real job sunny thing. Yeah, I mean, this was like, um, this was American men pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Will the children's play The Beavers be mentioned as a major piece of communist propaganda? No, it will not. But I feel like beavers on roller skates should be in more things. Like, 
I might have been more interested in theater as like a young adult and teenager and child if there were more beavers and roller skates. Will Hallie Flanagan be mentioned as the leader of the organization? No, because they're not even going to mention the organization. Will the fact that a song from a play considered propaganda was used later on as a convention theme song be on the test? It might be. And then the Federal Theater Project was abruptly ended on, ni- on June 30th, 1939. Nope, because then they'd have to acknowledge that it existed in the first place. Although typically things like dates will be on the test, kids. So if it has a number, it's probably on the test. Uh-huh. Like the number 33, the age that we are, which means that we will never achieve anything in this life. How many Nobel Prizes do, I, do you have again? I have zero. I also am not married to John Legend. Dude, I'm not married to John Legend. John Legend, you out there? John Legend. Can you help us win a Nobel Prize? You've already got your Oscar. You can help us get a Nobel Prize. It can't be that hard. No, I mean, there's only one Oscar for Best Song, and there's like seven Nobel Prizes every year. So on that note, we're going to go out into the world and try to make something of our old-ass lives before it's too late. Wait, you don't think this podcast is going to like launch our successful careers into the stratosphere of awesome? That's really up to you, Chrissy Teigen. I know you're listening. So tell me one thing you learned about Marie Curie. I learned that Marie Curie was actually not widely liked about the French, nor was she French. What did you learn about the Federal Theater Project? Well, that it existed, and that, of course, because it was run by arts people, they were trying to integrate before that was, like, a required thing, which was awesome. Yeah, it's not to say that we have always been the most progressive or the kindest, because we haven't. We've messed up a lot, and if we refuse to recognize that, we as the artistic community, then we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to everybody. But in the 1930s, the Federal Theater Project, all things considered, I'm sure there were problems still, was trying. Yeah. And it was run by a woman, and it had a whole unit for people of color and different languages. So kids, when you're studying for the test... Don't use our podcast. Mine was hastily researched at best. And mine just won't show up on your test about the WPA. Read your textbook. Listen to your teacher. Take better notes than I do. Class dismissed. Class dismissed.